This is an ABC podcast. I've had lots of conversations with young people and, you know, they say it's more difficult to decide on who's going to pay for the meal than whether you have sex after the meal. I think we've got used now to talking about these issues like sex and death and they're less taboo, but money still remains. So money is a powerful topic. It's an important topic for many people, but it's one we don't talk about very often and not comfortable talking about. Professor Adrian Furnham, author of The Psychology of Money and almost a hundred other books. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're skipping death and sex and going straight to who pays what and who gets paid what. And as the saying goes, money can't buy happiness, but does getting paid more make us happier and more motivated at work? According to Adrian, psychologists have long known this isn't necessarily the case. There was a very famous academic paper published in 1974 called the Easterlin Hypothesis. And the story goes that this man had wonderful data from America over long periods of time. So he could look at average happiness in America and he could look at average pay in America. And what he found was that pay went up, but happiness didn't. And what he discovered, and other people have subsequently proven, is that you get not a linear relationship. That is a clear, simple relationship between how much you get paid and how happy you are. But there's a sort of a cutoff point. And in most countries, it's twice the national average. So in America, it's about seven to $80,000 a year. In England, it's about 70,000 pounds. People find this difficult to believe. I was with some bankers the other day, and you and I said to them, well, how much do you have to earn to maximize your happiness? And one said to me, you living in London? I said, yes, living in London. He said, 1.5. I said, 1.5 what? He said, 1.5 million hmm. that you need to maximize your happiness in London. And he's wrong. Uh, the data show quite clearly that once you've got sufficient money, that your happiness doesn't go. Other factors determine happiness much more than money. Let's get on to those factors in just a minute. But first, is there a linear relationship between pay and job satisfaction? No, it's it's surprising. There's not even a very strong relationship between pay and pay satisfaction. So there's actual pay, pay satisfaction and job satisfaction. And the correlation is quite low. There's many other factors that have, a, have an impact. The first is about adjustment. That is, if I gave you a salary rise now, let's imagine your organization was very generous to you and gave you a 10% increase in salary. You'd be happy. We'd all be happy. How long will the effect last? A month, two months, three months? And people adapt to it. They adapt to it surprisingly quickly. The second, and this is really important and one of the most crucial issues in the whole of money, and that is what is the major predictor of your satisfaction with your salary? And it's not how much you get paid, but it's how much you get paid relatively to your colleagues, which is why this whole idea of pay secrecy is such an important issue. Once you've let the genie out of the bottle, once you've let other people know how much each other is paid, this has enormous consequences, enormous outbursts of anger. And the third factor I think that is important is what are the alternatives to a large salary? Are you prepared 
to uh, work 14 hours a day to get very, very stressed for a salary. It's a, it's a trade-off, the quality of life versus the salary, the amount of travel you have to do or amount of travel we had to do, I think, in these lockdown times. So based on this, what should employers remember when it comes to money and managing their staff then? There's no doubt about it that money is an attractant, but they, they stay in organisations and leave organisations for many other factors. Money is not a very a powerful motivator. Um, the psychologists are very interested, is money a motivator? Surely it's a matter of carrots and sticks, and if you've got a big enough carrot, you will motivate people very well. Well, we say, the economists argue this, and I think they're wrong. I say to employers, with regard to money, pay people market forces. In other words, be very sensitive to what the market is paying, number one. Pay people slightly more than that if you can, but market forces. And then pay people equitably, pay people fairly according to their input. Adrian, tell me about the associations we have with money. Clinical psychologists have been interested in the associations of money for long periods of time. And what they've suggested is that that people have four very clear, uh, quite strong and not always conscious associations of money. The the first is that money represents security. You know, if I have money in the bank, I'm secure, I am safe, I can protect myself from difficulties that come ahead. So I hold on to my money. This accounts for people being irrational savers and skin flints and so on. Next is money as love. I can show you my love. I can demonstrate to you how much I love and respect you by the gifts I give you. If I don't have money, I'm neither lovable nor can give love. So I deal in love. They're sort of love dealers. The third one is is money as power. Uh, You can see that in some of our world leaders. You know, money is the hair of Samson. I can do things with money. Whatever I want to do, I, I have to have the money to do it. It gives me significant power. And fourthly, there's money as freedom, that it represents an opportunity to do anything I want. If I've got enough money, I don't have to work. I can do what I want to do. Adrian, how does it play out at work? If you are interested in money as power and money as freedom, then you probably choose jobs which have lots of money that allow you to exercise some aspects of power. If you're interested in security, then job security and money security is more important than excitement and freedom that comes with that money. That's so interesting. You know, my associations with money have changed as I've changed careers. So as a lawyer, I think I was very much the hedonist. But now as a consultant, it's more about financial freedom for me. And how we think about remuneration also reflects our values. My name is Emily Barnes. I am a mediator and I have run this business for nearly six years. So money and work life is an interesting one for me. I started working, I think, when I was 12. So I have worked my entire life. I'm in a really fortunate position now where I've been working for myself for the last six years. And whilst I need to earn money to support my family, it is not the reason why I do my job. I'm motivated in my work by creating a difference and doing something that I believe strongly in and that can also fit around my family life. But 
money forms a part of that decision making, obviously, because we work to live, not live to work, or some of us do. Um, so I'm quite lucky that by following the value of doing work that I find fulfilling, the money aspect has naturally worked for me. Kate McCallum runs her own financial advisory firm and co-wrote a book called The Joy of Money. She says she's come to realise that when it comes to incentives, money is not enough. She agrees with Emily that you need to understand personal values. These values inform the decisions that people make and they inform their drivers. And then when it comes to work, it obviously flows through to people's compensation. And so traditionally in workplaces, we've focused very much on people's remuneration. So the amount of money that they earn as a salary or maybe as a bonus. And yet what we're seeing more and more is that that's not always the most compelling thing. And I know many people who work very, very hard, but they don't earn the big bucks, but they work really hard anyway. So we know that remuneration can't be the only driver. And it means that we've got to look a little more individually and really assess what it is that each one of the people in our team might value so that we know how to reward them and keep them engaged in work. And it's also important, obviously, for when we're trying to attract people. So making sure that the carrot is the right type of carrot for them. Kate, do you have an example of this? If I think about the team that I work with, I think it definitely plays into how we think about rewarding them. So we've done a lot of work around compensation and making sure that people are well rewarded for the work that they do. Many of our team members value health and well-being very highly. And so one of the things we've done is provided an ability for them to either do yoga or some sort of fitness classes or well-being classes, and our company actually pays for that. Now, that's not everybody in the team. So if we made that a blanket benefit, there's going to be some people that just simply wouldn't value that and it's not going to motivate them at all. And so with those people, we try and find something different. And so a couple of our our young staff members, they're still studying. For them, it's actually about having time off. And so we're very, very flexible about allowing them to have time off to study, time off to go away with friends, long weekends. So this flexibility about their time at work is something that they value really highly and it's going to help us to motivate and retain them. So I think it's really, really important not to think of values in a blanket sense, but to do the work and become really personal and really specific about how you align the things that you do in the way that you framework, that you compensate for work to each of your staff members' values. And so do you ask your staff members to do a value survey or how do you determine what is of importance to them, Kate? So in one of our team strategy offsites, we did some values work with them so that we could actually understand what was most important to them. And then we snuck that information away and we use it Each time we try and think about how we can best motivate them and reward them, um, we just go back to that. And interestingly, we talk a lot to our clients about it as well. Obviously, running a financial advice business, that's pretty important to understand what it is that matters most to them. And when it comes to motivating your staff, Adrian says you can't underestimate the power of intrinsic or internal motivation. First of all, there's autonomy. That is, do you give people options as to where and how and when they work. You know, the lockdown has changed things a lot, um, when people work, how they work, and so forth. And we do have, I think, 
less autonomy in some ways and more autonomy in others. But people like the autonomy. Also, they like doing things that they're naturally good at, that they have talents in. And can you find, if, you, if you're exploring and exploiting your talents, then there's no work at all. And then there's also the idea that you're doing work for greater good, that your, your work helps other people and helps the planet. Those things are very important. So we've always said the same thing. Intrinsic motivation is more powerful than extrinsic motivation, and money is extrinsic. And, I mean, you're right that money can have the opposite effect and it can, in fact, demotivate us. So how is that the case? It demotivates us, I think, by two factors. Most of all, it's the inequity, the unfairness. I had the experience some years ago of an HR person exposing professors' salaries. Now, we never knew how much we were paid. We assumed we were all paid roughly the same and we assumed we were paid fairly. When it was shown how much we were paid, there were three resignations. The top women left immediately. It was an absolute debacle because of this idea of, of social comparison. And that's deeply demotivating, the sense of fairness, because most of us know our inputs and our outputs, how hard we work and, and the consequences of how hard we work. And we assume that there should be a relationship between input, output, and pay. The harder I work, the better I do, the more I get paid. That isn't the case in many organizations, often because it's very difficult to measure output. And Adrian, I've been told by some managers that the men they manage ask for pay rises at least three times as often as the women they manage. Does the research support this? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I, I think um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's probably changing, as a lot of things with, with gender are changing. But for men, it's, it's, they're interested in power and money more than women. Women, uh, the, the data show, I was looking at some studies, they, they're, they're old studies, but it's the quality of the working life which is more important. Women will, you know, if they're not happy in the workplace, they're not happy with their colleagues, they're not happy with their subordinates, they're not happy with their bosses, that causes them really to go. It's that sense of community and support and happiness that is more important. For men, they're prepared to put up with stuff for money. And it's a way of, you know, thumping your chest and saying, well, I get paid more than you. So I think that is the case. And also, you know, when women go and negotiate for money, the data seems to suggest that what they, they say, you know, I'm doing this on behalf of my team. And they talk about their team success and them as leader of the team rather than their individual success. So yes, I think um, this is definitely definitely true. Men do value money, and it's often as symbolic as anything else. You know, getting paid a certain amount of money represents power and freedom. As a mediator, Emily is an expert in negotiation, and she agrees it's often difficult for women to negotiate hard for themselves. One of the things that I've found more successful in negotiating around pay is to think of it in terms of I'm negotiating to improve the life of my family. So whilst we sometimes feel uncomfortable about saying we're worth more, if you enter the negotiation with data, I know people in my role at other places are paid X, Y, and Z, and there's quite a gap with where I'm being paid now. And if we look at my performance, what have I added to the business over the last 12 months? Can we have a talk about whether we can review the remuneration because we don't, I don't think that it's currently at the level that is the market level. To negotiate pay, first we need to establish our worth. How do we do that? 
Finding other ways about establishing worth, I think, is really important rather than direct comparison because direct comparison, the downside is it's very easy if someone wants to, to find differences between what person X is doing compared to what you're doing. I think looking at the value you bring to the organisation. So, for example, in a job where you might be someone who brings in new business, dealing with the facts of what you've brought in in that business for them, what the organisation has earned from your contribution over a period of time, gives them data to see where your salary fits in around that and whether there is a way to even negotiate a percentage increase if you increase the value you're bringing to the organisation. So you're making it about yourself and the benefit to the organisation of having you specifically rather than somebody in your role. Talking about money can be so difficult. How can we make the conversation around pay less awkward? So most of us aren't comfortable having negotiations around pay. And I think accepting that most of us aren't comfortable, there's a few things that we can do to put us in a better position to put our best foot forward in starting that conversation. One of those is to do your research beforehand, have a really good think about how you want to present it, what your strongest points are, what the arguments might be against. So you can have some information ready to just call on if you feel like you've been put on the spot. The second thing to do is to practice. So I've previously written out almost like a speech of what I'm going to say. Now, it's not that you want to learn that off by rote, but it just gives you some words to find if you find yourself a bit sweaty um, and hot under the collar when you're actually trying to deliver it. Thirdly, think about who you're going to be delivering that message to. If you've got a choice of a couple of people that you might be able to have that first conversation with, have it with someone that you have a good rapport with. Choose a good time to have the conversation. You know, those of us with children know that um, it's all about timing when you ask for something. So, you know, don't do it when someone's busy and under a lot of pressure because they're unlikely to give you the time and space and consideration you need. Do it when the business is going well or when somebody's got plenty of notice that you're going to have that conversation. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And that comes back to timing. So if the first time, if you love your job and money isn't the most important thing and there were good reasons why you couldn't get a pay rise at that point in time, then find out what the things are that have to happen in the business for you to increase your pay and then wait for those things to happen and just touch base again with the organisation when that happens. So don't give up the first time. Persistence is important, but so is reading the situation within the organisation. So as Adrian explained, for us to feel happy and satisfied in our jobs, it's important our pay is fair compared to others and that we are paid what we're worth. But how do we determine that? Kate McCallum has some advice. And this is particularly important as we move into more of a distributed workforce where people are working from home, where technology is changing the nature of the way that we work. And it's also obviously changing the type of work that we do as as things become automated. And there's a lot of research that's been done around how you can actually shore up your value in the workforce. And I'm sure you've heard about this, but Linda Grattan from the London School of Business talks about the half-life of a learned skill, and that's shrinking 
if you think about it, years ago, people kind of got the skills that they needed. They went into a career and those skills pretty much lasted them for the rest of their life. What we're seeing now is that the half-life of a learned skill is only about five years. So what that means is that skills that you learned five years ago are about half as valuable today, which I reckon is pretty scary. So what we need to do is make sure that we're constantly skilling. And the more specialist our skills are, the more likely they are to be valuable. The second thing that we need to do to improve our worth is to make sure we've got good networks because the more specialist our skills are, the more we need to co-create and co-work with other people with other specialist skills that are complementary to our own. And then the third thing that I think we really need to do is we need to be nice people at work. So this is about respect and kindness. And the reason I say that is that I think more and more we know that people like to work with people who they like dealing with far more than somebody who's super smart. And so if we're somebody who's nice to work with, then it's highly likely that we'll have better networks and be able to prove our value and our worth over time for our employers. And Kate, often we do think of investment of money in terms of properties and shares, but what I'm hearing from you is maybe we should be thinking about investment in ourselves in terms of our upskilling uh, and potential for the future. Absolutely. We should absolutely be thinking about our worth as being our career and our future employment. It is so, so important. It's interesting, you know, when I look at a lot of the financial information and financial guidance that people are given, they're told that they should budget, that they should cut spending. And the way I think about that is, yep, that's important. But generally, even if you're really diligent about cutting your budget, for most people, you're going to be able to cut, let's say, 10%, maybe 20% of your expenditure. So just round numbers, if you were spending 100000 a year, that means that you can cut maybe 10000 or 20000 Now, that's good. But if you think about the upside of having a really strong career, the upside is in the hundreds of thousands, not the tens of thousands. And so if we can look after our human capital, which is our ability to earn an income and earn a good income, then we're going to be a lot better off by spending some time focusing on that. And as I said, a big part of that is keeping our skills and our knowledge current. And what we're seeing more and more of is this is not about necessarily going and enrolling in another three or four year degree. It's about mini skilling. And there's a lot of short courses and and mini bite-sized university courses that we can do to keep our skills up to date. And so that's pretty accessible for most of us. Doesn't cost as much as a university degree. And we don't necessarily need to take a lot of time out from work in order to achieve that. The other thing that I think is really super important around careers is the sustainability of your employment and therefore your income. There's a lot of conversation going on at the moment about ageism in the workforce. And so as we get older, and and I'm not talking 60 or 70, I'm talking for some people 40 or 50, it's getting increasingly hard for those 40 and 50-year-olds to get the type of role that they may have just had, particularly if they've faced a redundancy. So, you know, most of us today who are age 40 can expect to live pretty close to age 100. And we're likely to work through to age 70, maybe even 75. 
my 20-something kids, they're not going to like this, but they're likely to need to work closer to age 80 just to have sufficient income to sustain themselves over a very, very long lifetime. Financial advisor Kate McCallum and Kate's book is The Joy of Money. And join me again next week for another taboo topic. We're on a roll. We're talking politics in the office and why it's important that we have these conversations, even when we vehemently disagree. Our politics represent our values and our values are really our our moral system. It's the way we think about the world. It's the way we think about right and wrong. It's the way we think about ourselves and the important people in our lives. So in that way, politics are are profoundly personal. And so when we disagree on a political opinion, it feels profoundly personal. It feels like people are disagreeing with us, with our very essence, our very selves. If you haven't already, take a minute to subscribe so you never miss a show. And if you want to tell us what you think about this or any of our other shows, email us at thisworkinglife at abc.net.au. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. She's not in it for the money. She just loves working with me and wearing jeans to work. I'm Lisa Leog, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.